Hi, folks. It's Rabbi Sharon Brous here. You are listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our guest speakers, our teachers, anything we think worth listening to that we can capture, you can hear right here. Thank you so much for being with us. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Um, so good to be with all of you today. About 30 years ago, a friend of mine named Rabbi Steve Greenberg wrote a game-changing piece in Tikkun Magazine about his experience as a gay Orthodox rabbi. And he published this piece under a pseudonym. He called himself Yaakov Levado, meaning Jacob alone. Those words are taken from next week's Parsha, from Parshat Vayishlach, from Genesis chapter 32, verse 25, when Jacob is preparing to encounter his estranged brother, Esav, after decades of being apart. And he knows that his brother might very well, by right, try to kill him. So he sends his robust family, four wives, at least 12 children, all of his cattle and all of his possessions ahead. And then he goes into the deep, dark night alone. Rabbi Greenberg said that he chose that name, Yaakov Levado, to write this piece because the words so powerfully express Jacob's detachment, his loneliness, and his struggle. But this week's Parsha, even before all of that has happened, Jacob is also alone. Our Parsha is Parshat Vayetze, and it marks the beginning of Jacob's journey when he's just left home for the first time after deceiving his brother and his father and taking those blessings. And he ventures out from Beersheba toward Haran in search of his destiny. That first night, I imagine he must have been terrified. He's out in the wilderness. The sun is setting. It's getting cold in the desert. There's no protection from the harsh winds. So he takes some stones and he arranges them around his head and he tries to fall asleep alone. He's so alone that when God appears to him in a dream, Jacob is equal parts awestruck and disbelieving. God says, I promise I'll be with you. And Yaakov responds, Im Elohim imadi, if you're with me, meaning he can't even imagine trusting companionship even from God. That's how alone and isolated and separated Yaakov is. Isn't it interesting that, that Jacob, Yaakov, is fundamentally alone both when he's actually alone in the wilderness, untethered from and unprotected by his family, and then again decades later when he has more wives and children and animals and wealth than anybody could ever dream of. Yaakov Levado. He is in both cases fundamentally alone. I remember reading many years ago that Janis Joplin said that the song of her life would be called, I just made love to 25,000 people, but I'm going home alone. We know there's no, not always a correlation between aloneness and loneliness. Like Jacob, we're somehow equally susceptible to loneliness when we're surrounded by people and when we're actually alone. And both at the beginning and at the end of his journey, Jacob is alone. Everyone's scrambling these weeks in the aftermath of the election to try to understand how it could be that tens of millions of Americans voted differently than they did. How is it possible 
given all that we've experienced, all the collective trauma and the suffering that so many people could make a choice that we perceive to be so irrational, so morally anemic, such an act of violence against our understanding of what's just and right? And how could we all have so perilously underestimated the forces that would draw so many people to make that kind of decision? One answer came this week from a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute named Daniel Cox, and I'm grateful to Adam Wergelis for bringing this study my way. Cox argues that the untold story behind the 2020 elections has something to do with social isolation and the lack of social connection. So listen to this, a pre-election survey set out to determine the strength of Americans' social networks. Respondents were asked, with how many people have you discussed important personal matters or concerns in the last six months? And here's what they found. Nearly one in five, almost 20% of Americans reported having literally no one that they're close with. Think about what that means. No one, no one to share your fear, your uncertainty, no one to commiserate with about the effects of the pandemic or the impact of the shutdowns, no one to talk to about the elections themselves, no one with whom to process the murder of George Floyd and the racial justice uprising, no one to think about what it would be like to sit alone for Thanksgiving this year. And maybe most notably, these results stood in, in stark contrast with the results from the last time they engaged the same survey in 2013. At that time, 8% of Americans reported having no one in their social network. And that was a lot back then. But there's been a nine percentage point increase in just seven years, which means we are trending hard in the wrong direction right now. Cox and his team are really interested in this data because they're trying to understand voting patterns and why certain people vote for candidates who may even be hell bent on the implementation of policies that would only cause them harm. And they note that those people who are more socially disconnected are overwhelmingly more likely to vote for a hard right candidate than a progressive one. And I find that really interesting, fascinating. But right now I'm most concerned about and most interested in what it means to live in a society in which nearly 20% of the population is truly alone, whether physically and emotionally or just emotionally. They're not talking to anyone about what's weighing heavily on their hearts. Everyone's talking about the polarization in America today, about the massive political and economic fissures. And this data seems to indicate that at the center of it all might be a pretty significant spiritual crisis, a crisis of loneliness and social isolation. I wanna be really clear that I believe that at the heart of our political rifts, is real ideological disagreement, much of it rooted in conscious and subconscious conditioning around white supremacy. But those divisions are exacerbated by social isolation. And here's how it works. The studies show that there's substantial homogeneity by race, ethnicity, and religion in our social universes. So white people tend to hang out with white people, black people with black people, Jews gravitate toward Jews. Evangelicals spend most of their time with other evangelicals. Yet those people with robust social ties to people outside their immediate racial, ethnic, or religious affinity groups tend to be more progressive in their thinking. It seems really clear that it's actually easier to empathize with another person or another community's struggles 
if you actually talk to or get to know someone from within that community. So now I wanna ask you to imagine not only that you're not engaging anyone outside your race or your religion, but you're not really engaging anyone at all. 20% of Americans are in that category. That level of social isolation has not only a social and an emotional impact, but also a political impact. What is that loneliness and, and the feelings of isolation and shame and fear that loneliness engenders? What does it do to a person? And, and what about that loneliness and the lack of open-hearted debate, of healthy disagreement, of generative dissensus? What does it do to a person? It's not hard to see how social isolation might inevitably harden a person's heart. So I'm reading this book right now by Vivek Murthy, the former Surgeon General called Together, The Healing Power of the Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World. Incidentally, he was just named to the president-elect's COVID response team, which is a very good thing. He writes about loneliness as a public health crisis, and he describes it this way. He says, loneliness is the gap between the connections we need and the connections that we have. And here's what's really important to know. According to Dr. Murthy, human beings need three dimensions of social relationships in our lives. And when we're missing even one of them, we will suffer from loneliness. So first we need intimate or deeply emotional relationships. There's an innate longing that human beings have for a close confidant. This could be an intimate partner, this could be a spouse, or it could be a trusted friend. Someone who can really see you and someone who you can see, who you feel responsible to. This is a real human need, he says. The second level of relationships that we need are social relationships. This is a yearning for quality friendships, for social companionship, to support each other. through People will support each other through difficult times. This is your friend group. Those who you'd want to celebrate with, say you have a baby and want to bench Gomel, say you're celebrating your 75th birthday, you want your people with you. And finally, the third level is collective or communal relationships. We hunger for a network, for a community of shared purpose where we can stand on the same side of history with others and know that we're working together toward a greater end. I attribute this third need to the, to, to the fact that so many people have joined ICAR from afar over these last many months, when literally everything that you're getting from us today, you could easily get for free on Facebook Live. But you're joining because you want to actually be part of something, whether you're here in Los Angeles or you're in Philly or New York or Boston or Atlanta or Macon or Brazil or Spain. And we want you to be with us. It's a blessing for us all. We feel enlarged by your presence in our community. Murthy says that all three of these kinds of relationships are necessary for human beings to really thrive. Personal, intimate, confidant relationships, social group relationships, and communities of shared purpose. So it could be that if you have a deeply fulfilling marriage and a great friend group, you can still feel lonely because you don't have a community. And that's not a deficiency in your marriage or in your friendships. It just means that we have a very human need for all three of these kinds of relationships to be healthy. This is a total revelation for me, I have to tell you. So what does that mean for us today? It means we're living through a spiritual crisis that is fueling a political crisis. 
and a public health crisis, loneliness, that's been exacerbated by the public health crisis of COVID because it's simply impossible to thicken some of these layers of connection in the midst of pandemic. My friends tell me, and I believe them, that it's not very easy to date in a pandemic, nor can we easily see our friends. And, and I, I feel the novelty of Zoom cocktails wearing off. It, it's, it's just not easy to show up these days. It takes real effort. And yet we have to because our health and the health of our society actually relies on it. I talked to someone in our community a couple months ago who told me that Ikar Shabbat services pre-COVID was the only place where she felt seen in the world, the only place where it mattered if she showed up or not. And Zoom services don't work for her. And she said that not having a weekly connection to our community as a result has made her feel like she's slipping away from the world. The more people who feel even momentarily passive brushes with, if I disappeared tomorrow, would anyone even notice, the more unwell we are as a society. So I wanna ask us what we're going to do about it. Last Shabbat, I read a beautiful story about a man named Simon Gronowski, an 89-year-old Belgian Jew. He escaped the Nazis as an 11-year-old boy. He was Levi's age. His mother urged him to jump from the speeding cattle car that was transporting them to Auschwitz. And only once he hit the ground did he realize that his mother did not follow him out. And she and his older sister were both murdered in Auschwitz. He survived. He was hidden by Catholic righteous Gentiles for two years until the war's end. And now it's nearly 80 years later and coronavirus hits Europe and he is taken back to the isolation, to the dislocation, the confinement, the scarcity, the rationing, the terror of those years of hiding. So he does two things. First, he writes a beautiful article about his experience as a boy with a prayer that we today find the strength to face with courage and caution, the ordeal of this terrible epidemic and overcome it. And the second thing that he does is he pulls his piano over to the window of his apartment and he begins to play for his neighbors. Every day, he fills the streets of his little Belgian town with music and he lifts his neighbor's spirits and reinvigorates their sense of connectedness to one another and to something greater. He said that he learned how to play piano in order to connect more deeply with his older sister, who before the deportation had been an exceptionally talented young pianist. And his play today became an unparalleled source of strength and hope for his neighbors and revived in him a true sense of purpose. Right before Shabbat came in, I got an alert on my phone just as I was finishing preparing this sermon. And it said the following, as virus cases surge, Los Angeles County has urged residents to stay home and has barred private gatherings of people from, from different households, period. This now on top of eight months of isolation. As we try to navigate these days ahead, days in which we like Yaakov may be and may feel deeply alone, whether we're in a house full of screaming children or living alone, when the weight of this separation and this isolation gets really heavy on our hearts and we find ourselves feeling increasingly untethered from this world, God forbid wondering 
If I disappear today, would anyone even notice? I pray that we remember Simon Gronowski, that we remember that the simple act of pulling a piano to the window can be a force for good in the world. That's what Wendy and Rick did when they went outside and sang and danced for their neighbors. Maybe we're gonna be like Sam Hutman and deliver delicious treats to unsuspecting friends. Maybe we're gonna be like the many, many volunteers who showed up as Shomrim to guard and watch over the body of a beloved community member this past week in the time in between death and burial. All of these things are demonstrations of the will to connect even as the restrictions around us grow. One day when we get to the other side of all of this, we are going to be able to work to thicken all of the essential types of relationships in our lives. For now, I pray that this Shabbat is a reminder of the power of leaning into community, whether here on Shabbat Zoom, where it might even be an act of courage to turn your video on and let somebody into your world, or, or whether it's through phone banks to try to get out the vote for a runoff election, or whether it's through distanced walks in the park, or even by bringing your music to the window. Every one of us right now needs to show that we are committed to retethering to this world for our sakes and for each other's. I wish you Shabbat Shalom. Hey everybody, Randy Sklar here. I'm an eCar member. And Jason Sklar here. I'm an eCar fan. Yeah, and we uh, love eCar so much. We love the message that eCar uh, delivers in their many podcasts. And we feel like most people feel there aren't a lot of podcasts in this world. I think there are only two or three. There's only a couple. So what we'd like you to do is donate to eCar. Get ecar-la.org uh, so that they can do more podcasts and more cool things because Lord knows the world needs more podcasts. Yep.